Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020, and this is our final installment in our Bible study on the book of Jonah. We are in chapter 4, and if you need to catch up on the previous chapters, you're more than welcome to check out those on our podcasts here at Resurrection. But without further ado, since this went a little long today, we're going to just jump right into it with Jonah chapter 4. Well, we'll go ahead and get started here. Um, we'll begin with a word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Ooh, ooh. Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come and help us by your might that the sins which, which weigh us down may be quickly lifted by your grace and mercy. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. We're not quite to Christmas prayers yet. That was still the Advent for prayer for Sunday that we just went through. Um, it's still Advent, even though Karen's wearing a Christmas sweater. That's okay. <laughs> and my Starbucks cup has, has Christmas stuff all over it. So. That's because she's not coming to church Thursday, <laughs> Thursday and Friday. Oh, I know that. <laughs> Karen's shaking her head. Telling tales out of school, huh? Yep. All right, so we are in... Uh, Jonah chapter 4, right? Mm -hmm. um, quick recap. What has happened to this point? Can anyone just summarize chapter 1 for me a little bit? Kinda, what happened in chapter 1? Let's, let's, let's kind of go down the line. What happened first? Flee. The word flee. Yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah, so the, the, word, of, the, word, the word of the Lord... Uh, came to Jonah saying, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah fled, right? He uh, fled to, um, or he tried to flee, but what happened along the way when he was on the water in the boat? Great storm, and they threw him overboard. Right, a great storm happened. The sailors were terrified. They. You know, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it. It's such a violent storm, and yet they can have a trial. You know, they can, they can talk amongst themselves about, whose fault is this? What's going on? Who's this, that, and the other? Let's pray. You know, and um, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Your life is in danger. I guess, I guess that's, kind of a, a, that's kind of a testament or testimony to us. In the midst of a bunch of chaos, what's the best thing to do? Pray. Pray. So, but they were praying to their false gods, and they found out that he was a Hebrew, and he ironically says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, you know, I fear Yahweh, um, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and things like that, and ironically, I'm trying to run away from this God, and they say, well, pray to him, and then he says, throw me overboard, they say no, so they try to row to dry ground, and then they can't, so they say, well, Lord, forgive us, so they throw him overboard, and then he's swallowed up by a fish, right? And what happens next? Well, before the fish, the storm was quieted. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, so they throw him into the sea, the storm quiets down, 
And then what do they do? That's a good point. What do they do after they af, af, after the storm? They prayed to the true God. That's right. They uh, what does it say? They feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Right. They made a faithful um, acknowledgement of the one true God. So then what happens? Jonah gets swallowed up by a fish. Right. Uh, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, it wasn't just happenstance. Um, and he swallowed up. He swallowed up Jonah. And then what happens? Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of the fish. Yeah, Jonah prays. He has his own little psalm here. Uh, in some sense, you could say he probably sang while he was in there. I mean, we talked Sunday morning. Uh, the gospel text was the Magnificat, where Mary sings, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. It says in the text that she says this, but the church has interpreted it to be that she sang this. It's because it's like a psalm, and psalms were meant to be sung. Um, and actually, if you look in the Hebrew, the Hebrew words actually rhyme. It's kind of nice, and it sounds really neat, too. Um, so Jonah sings his psalm, and thus he's also praying. You know, I think, I think we kind of disconnect prayer and song far too often. Uh, when you sing a hymn, um, when you sing a hymn from the hymnal or, you know, you, you sing a hymn, you're singing praise and thanks to God or you're asking Him to do something right. I think in this, this last Sunday, we're actually, there was a couple stanzas there where it says, Lord, may you do this and may you keep us safe from this. And even think about the, uh, you know, a mighty fortress... Um, that's based on a psalm. Luther adapted that from a psalm, which is asking God to continue to protect us and strengthen us and, and thwart the devil's power and things like that, right? So when we sing hymns, uh, I don't remember who said this. Maybe I think I've heard it attributed to Luther, but I think it's just an anonymous saying that he who sings a hymn prays twice, you know? Because you're singing... Because you're not only saying good words of praise and thanksgiving and um, requests to God, but you're also singing. It's accessing a whole different register, as, as it were. So, that little spiel over. <laughs> Jonah sings, and he sings this psalm. And remember how you can see he just, with, with what he's saying, it reflects him going deeper and deeper in, you know, down, down, and then around verse 6, you see, um, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And then that's where you see the upward trend. So it's like you can divide this up into three sections, as in the three days and three nights that he was in the belly of the fish. So then he gets out. Uh, but I did, I did, I was reading through the commentary a little bit more. And, you know, there's this whole thing about, you know, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Um, and I've made a big show of what that probably was like. But the word vomit is never, like, it's not a polite word, right? And, and it's not something to where we can just say, oh, and he vomited him out. Oh, okay. Moving on. It, it's, it's to show disgust or to show, like, a repulsiveness or something. So that adds to that understanding of uh, Jonah... I don't know, ironically saying all these things, but still not getting the point of what's going on, right? Of that, you know, salvation is of the Lord, and that, you know. Um, so we see that, and then we see in verse, sorry, in chapter 3, what happens next? This is what we talked about last week. 
He goes off to Nineveh. Mm-hmm. And what happens at Nineveh? I don't remember. <laughs> okay. He, he tells them what the Lord told them to, and they all repent. Right. Remember how we said, um, so Jonah, Jonah goes, um, he gets a second call. Remember how we said this? he's the only prophet to ever get a second call. Um, because it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's not, that doesn't happen anywhere else. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went out of Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. He walks the span of it three days, right? And saying, only, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be... Uh, overthrown, overturned. The Hebrew word, remember, was was a uh, hafak, which means can mean either to destroy, or overthrow, overturn, or just to change. Right? When you understand the nuance of that word, it brings up the possibility that even though Jonah, you know, we had all these possibilities, right? Why does he go? <clears throat> He either gave up, he thought, you know, what's the point in fighting, I'll just go. He had a true change of heart. Or he thought that, I'll just go and just say it in such a way to where they'll ignore it. And they'll just be destroyed. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's, these are all possibilities. And he probably, and, and if that's true, he thought he might have been clever by just going in there saying, yep, 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, shall be overthrown. Right? not realizing that even that brief message could make all the difference, right? Um, because that's, that's what God had told him to go and say, to go and proclaim. And then, because of this proclamation from God, what happens? Miraculously. Yeah, they turned away from their sinful ways and they believed, right? It says they believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then, then the king gets involved. Remember how we said this is a nice kind of parallel to the sailors, where the king is the one who, who proclaims a fast and proclaims all these things. Um, and uh, says, ask the rhetorical question, you know, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And that reminds us of uh, the captain, where he says, you know, um, call, call on your God to Jonah. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish, right? So it's this kind of um, nice parallel thing going on here. And then we see, so the entire land, uh, or the entire city of Nineveh, repents, and they believe by the power of God. Right? So God saw their works and they, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Um, now we are getting into the very last part um, of what the problem... You know, so we said last time there was a, a lingering problem. Right? That... Um, this is not the resolution to the book. That, like, if we were to stop at the end of chapter 3, it'd be nice and tidy. 
But then we get this chapter 4 that can be very perplexing. Anybody have a question? Did... Okay, I thought I saw a hand go up. Um, so yeah, we see that there's a lingering problem here because the, mm, the Ninevites are spared, um, but we see here in chapter 4 that the problem is not Nineveh, but rather Jonah. Do you have any questions on our recap here? Not. We'll just go ahead and get into chapter four. Spend, spend our time on that. It's very brief, but anybody want to read it? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Dost thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head, to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for the, for the which, thou, which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow which came up in the night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? And, and that's, <laughs> that's it. it, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's why I said that. That's it. That's shaggy, all there is. Shaggy dog story. What's that? A shaggy dog story. What's the shaggy dog story? It leaves you out in limbo. <laughs> it never has an ending. Yeah. Are y'all satisfied with this ending? What's a question? It's yeah. It's, it leaves it with the question. Isn't that fun? <laughs> I mean, everybody thinks that you know. Uh, it, it 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 makes me think of these movies where there's like a cliffhanger at the end and you never get a resolution. It's like. Ooh, wasn't that just so interesting? It's like, no, Jonah did it. You know, it's like God did it in Jonah. This is not a new thing that you just leave people hanging on this and you wonder what's going on. But the story um, actually ended in three. Well, no, not really. Otherwise, it wouldn't have kept going. Well, but, I mean, it's kept going because of Jonah. Well, that's not a good point. So, so, yeah, the people of Nineveh, I mean... Yeah. Okay, we're going to go through this bit by bit, but we're, we're going to see here that um, you can see that like the first three chapters 
of Jonah are juxtaposed with chapter 4, which means that, you know, it's like counterbalanced with it. You know, uh, chapter 3, so it's a, you know, each of the thir first three chapters has only half of a conversation. Think about it. You see in chapters 1 and 3, the word of Yahweh comes to the prophet, but Jonah does not verbally reply. Right? It never says, Jonah said this to the Lord, Oh, I, I fear exceedingly great, and therefore I will flee. No, he just leaves. We only see half the conversation there. Right? That's kind of interesting, because, um, I mean, that's, that's part of what makes Jonah such a short book. There's not a full revealing of the conversation or uh, the full context of everything. You kind of have to read between the lines a little bit on some things. In chapter 2, you also see that Jonah prays to Yahweh, but Yahweh does not reply verbally, right? He has this great long psalm, but God doesn't say anything in response. And then um, only in chapter 4 is there actual conversation between Yahweh and Jonah. And so you see this, and, and, and Dr. Lessing actually um, points out that mathematically in chapter 4, Jonah and Yahweh, God, both have e equal speaking time. There's just as many words that Jonah uses as Yahweh. It's kind of interesting. They're kind of going toe-to-toe -to -toe here, but they're not equally matched by far, right? It's still a man contending with God. And you see that uh, they get equal... Um, airtime, as it were, but God gets the last word. It's actually interesting. If you go back to chapter 1, what does the book begin with? And the Lord. Yeah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? And then at the end, God has the last word, right? It's a bookend. God gets the first and the last word in the entire book. So we see that there's kind of a tension here, right? Um, we see that uh, chapter 4 can be a little frustrating. Um, but it's kind of interesting because, well, let's just go through it. So right after chapter 3, we see this wonderful thing, right? God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. All right, good news, right? Sinners are saved. But what's the next word? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became very angry, right? So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? So let me just translate this in a different way. It's like he's saying, Lord, is this not what I said? I know that you're merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, and that's why I didn't want to go. I don't want them to have it. Right? Yep. I don't want them to have it. Please, just... And, and this is not new that a prophet would ask that God would just take his life. This is not new. Where else does this happen? Do you all know? Off the top of your head? Job. Yeah, there's Job. Job wasn't, Job wasn't really a prophet. But, I mean, in terms of prophets, what, are, what other two major prophets can you think of that have said, Lord, just 
end my life now. It's too Moses much. Moses said it a bunch of times. Moses said it, yeah. Moses said it back in um, Exodus... No, no, sorry. Numbers 11. Uh, and what other, what other prophet said it notably after he smote a bunch of the prophets of Baal and he was fleeing from Jezebel? <coughs> the great prophet Elijah, mm -hmm. right? He fled and feared for his life. So the thing is, is that those times were, I don't know, I guess understandable because they were in great distress because they had done everything that the Lord had asked them to do. They did everything that Yahweh had commanded them to do and yet they were still persecuted, right? That Moses appealed to the people and said, Obey the Lord your God, for he has done these great things for you. He brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He is, he is delivering you to the promised land. And what did the people do? They didn't like it. Yeah, they complained. They grumbled against the Lord, which is to violently, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's just to be angry with God and not seeking any remedy, right? It's just to be angry. And so Moses says, I, I give up. Lord, just take my life. It's too much to deal with, you know? Um, and with Elijah, he was fearing for his life. He thought that he was the only true believer left in the entire world. And he said, Lord, just, let's just call it done. Just take my life, right? How are those moments different from Jonah? Why is Jonah upset? Why does Jonah want the Lord to just take his life? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's the exact opposite of, those, of the other guys. What would that be? Yeah, he was angry with God. Angry with God for what? For making him look like a fool. Because he comes to the Ninevites and... You know, it says you're going to be destroyed in 40 days and blah, blah, blah. Okay, and, that's interesting. That's interesting. Paul, were you going to say something? Yeah. I, in the beginning, he never wanted God to forgive or save Nineveh. And yet what happened? He did, and he didn't like it. That's right, and yeah. So he didn't want to be around to see it. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. The heathen repent and the godly people remain ungodly. Yep. And Jesus said if these miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, the town would still be as big as Austin, Texas, <laughs> and Washington, D.C., and New York, and Los Angeles, and London combined. Yeah. So uh, we're going to get to uh, Jesus, too. So, so the thing is, is that you see, yeah, that... The heathen repents. I'm never my children so mean. <laughs> so untrainable. Yeah. They don't hear a word I'm saying. Why are they so ungrateful, right? I mean, for everything that God has done for Daddy, his people. Daddy, don't you know to shut up? <laughs> Listen. That's what mine tell me now. Oh, goodness. They, not... Yeah, literally. Okay. It's time for you to shut up and listen. Oh. And I'm listening. All right. <laughs> Say something. Okay, I will. So, uh... <laughs> All right, so what happens is you see that, okay, yeah, I, can, I guess I can see the whole thing of, you know, he's made a fool. But at the same time, 
Remember how he said that uh, his prophecy came true no matter what. If they were destroyed, yeah, that would be fulfilled. If they were changed, yes, it's still fulfilled because it's the same word. Right. Uh, and they would have been destroyed in the sense that their sinfulness would have been destroyed and they would have been made godly by the power of God, by them just trusting in his mercy. Right. So that's on one hand, that's possibility. The stronger possibility, and what I think is true, is that uh, uh, that <coughs> unlike Moses and Elijah, who were leading people, who though they were called the people of God, they were not godly at all. They were doing what they were doing so that they would repent and so that they would come to faith and be <coughs> saved. And uh, that's, I mean, they were upset because they thought they were the only ones who actually believed this stuff. They did desire that the people would turn and believe. Jonah doesn't. He doesn't want them to believe. He doesn't want that salvation for them. He doesn't uh, think that they deserve it. Uh, and he wants them to be destroyed because he thinks they deserve it. He's putting him, himself in the place of God, right? So we see here um, that... Uh, yeah, Jonah ironically asks for death after Nineveh is saved through his, you know, through his, through his work, through his ministry, right? Um, I think he might even be extra sickened that he actually had a hand in their salvation at least as the instrument of God. And that sounds kind of harsh to Jonah, but I mean, what else can you gain from this, or what else can you glean from this? He is self-righteous, self-centered, self-important, because he literally says, Lord, is that not what I said? I know you're merciful. I know you love them. I don't. I hate them. I want them to die. But yet you just had to love them. Jeez, you know. <laughs> You had to do it, didn't you, God? And it's interesting, because you see here, um, it is better for me to die than to live and see these dirty heathens be called your children. Think about that. That's pretty terrible, right? That sounds like a good old German. <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny because, because um, the Germans, the Germanic people, are, are a very interesting people. They, they are probably, uh, if you look at the history of the church, Saint Boniface, you know, he was the patron saint of the German people, because he was a missionary to the Germans, and he went... Boniface? Mm -hmm. I had a great-grandfather named Bonifacio. Yeah, so he was named after that saint. He was a missionary to the German people, and uh, is credited for, really, Christianity taking root in Germany. It's kind of interesting, you know? I mean, even the Germans were heathens at one point in time. Uh, the Germanic people were equated to barbarians. Maybe right. that's why they named that Episcopal Church on 87 South, St. Boniface. 
Well, it's a shame it's Episcopal. Anyways. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame it's Episcopalian. Because no. I was thinking to myself, I was like, that'd be kind of a nice Lutheran church name, well, St. Boniface I mean, Lutheran Church. It's all Germans around there, so that's what But then again, Lutherans, we, uh, we want the gospel for all people. We're not like Jonah, right? Yeah. We should not strive to be like Jonah, right? We should, we should strive to be as God would have us be, uh, that, this, that salvation is for all people. Right? Which is why we should have the inherent, I don't know, um, the inherent response whenever we hear what Jonah says to be disgust. Right? It's pretty disgusting that Jonah would be so childish, should, should be so selfish. Right? Um, and yes, I'm being harsh, but it's actually kind of funny. I'm being really harsh, but God is actually being very gentle here. I know. He's being very gentle. Very tolerant. Yes, he's being... And you know, tolerance is an interesting word. Because I've, you know, you hear it a lot today. It's like, well, be, be tolerant, be tolerant. And I don't think people understand. They want to tout tolerance as a virtue. But when you think about it, tolerance has to do with putting up with something that you despise. It's putting up with something you disagree with, something that you can't stand and you have to be patient, right? So tolerance as a virtue should not be an end in itself, but it should be a means to the end of bearing with somebody so that they would understand what they're doing wrong, so that they might correct it, so that they might believe correctly about certain things, as opposed to just tolerating them and letting them be alone in their sin and things like that. So, But in this context, don't you think God was being tolerant? Exactly. But to the end, that Jonah would see the error of his ways. Right? God could have just clearly said, okay. shut up, Jonah. You don't know what you're talking about. And who, did, who, who do you think you are talking to me the way that you're talking? But what does he say? Right? He says, is it right for you to be angry? Right? Is it right for you to, to be angry about these things? Think about this, Jonah. You know? uh, so God is being very gentle here. Uh, he is being very patient. Or, as I prefer in the King James, long-suffering. Long mm. right? He is long-suffering with Jonah. Uh, because, what is it, Jonah, here's, you know, the, the, the Lord says, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah goes out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Hoping, ooh, hoping that they would be destroyed. Kind of sick, um, if you think about it. Um, well, here, I'm, I'm getting a little, a little ahead of myself here. So... Um, Let's back up a little bit, because we still have some time here. Remember how we broke this thing up into scenes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in our little handout at the beginning of the class, I had this, uh, there's a, an outline, right? And we are in the last two scenes of what's going on. So, scene six is... Uh, 
Well, this says Jonah's prayer in Nineveh. Um, I think I prefer Dr. Lessing where he says Jonah's, um, Jonah's response. I mean, it is a prayer. Uh, response to Yahweh's change of verdict. Try and make it readable. Ugh. To save Nineveh. Right? That's verses um, 1 through 3. So we see there in verses 1 through 3 that Jonah's angry. In fact, uh, his, his, um, his anger can also be interpreted as um, hatred. Right? Um, he is uh, asking that God would kill him, right? Um, it's better for me to die than to live. You know, I knew that I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, because you are so gracious and merciful, please kill me, right? Please kill me. Um, although there is something interesting here that Dr. Lessing points out in his commentary that, uh, I know I just wrote all this out, but I need to erase it. <laughs> so it's Jonah's response to Yahweh's change of verdict to save Nineveh. And it's verses 1 through 3, so it's 4, 1 through 3. But here, what happens is he says while I was still in my country. Now the word for country is an interesting one, and I, I, I was trying to figure out how Dr. Lessing could make this connection, but he connects it to Exodus 14, which is the part of Exodus where the Israelites are fleeing, and um, they say to Moses, when they see the Pharaoh's chariots approaching, right? They're at the Red Sea, they're panicking, and then what's their first instinct? They say, was this not the word that we spoke to you back in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve, that, that we may serve Egypt? For it was better for us to serve Egypt than that we should die in the wilderness, right? It's kind of interesting how he would make that connection between them groaning about God uh, because they're like, well, you know what? At least we weren't being pursued and killed as we are now. We'd rather just go back to being slaves. But isn't this what we told you? You know, as, as if to say, we don't want to be free. We want to go back to this horrible condition that we were in because it's better than death. And that, yeah, think about that. But don't you think at this point, Jonah is thinking he's going to be in Nineveh the rest of his life? And that's why he's so depressed and upset. <laughs> that's an interesting uh, thought. Because he's a long way from home and he has nothing. I mean, he he bought the ship, put all of his investments into that, and lost oh, it all. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that. I mean, that certainly add that that would certainly add to his despair mm -hmm. uh, that he would have to be and it would link stuck back there. to huh? Exodus too. Yeah, so he'd have to be in this new place um, 
I, I think he would try and find a way back. I wonder if, if he actually believed and uh, was joyful at the fact that uh, the people of Nineveh were saved, if he appealed to them, they would have known who he was. And he could appeal to them in good faith and say, will you help me get back to my homeland? I don't doubt that people would have said, sure, we'll, we'll see what we can do and help you out. But Jonah's not going to ask for help. He might not, but that's the thing, and that's what we'll get to by the end of the chapter. We don't know what happens. Right. We have no idea what happens. God lets your imagination run wild. It lets you fill it in, fill in the blanks. So we see here that um, there's this parallel to uh, Exodus 14 in that both texts, both uh, with with the uh, with with Exodus 14, the Israelites groaning about saying, uh, leave us alone so that we may stay in our slavery. And Jonah saying, isn't this what I told you while I was still in my country? Just leave me alone and let them die. Yeah. Right? Both texts demonstrate the, the unwillingness of people to leave a previous place of security. Right? As it with the, with the Israelites, that's that's Egypt, and with Jonah, that's my ground or my country uh, in Israel. Uh, so it's their, it, it's their unwillingness to leave a previous place of security at Yahweh's command to face a new locale. Right? Both prefer n n negative past experiences over moving into the future planned by God. Israel preferred slavery in Egypt instead of what looked like coming death. Jonah prefers death rather than life under the grace of God that welcomes even converted Gentiles. Right. So Jonah becomes a picture of rebellious... Um, uh, excuse me. Of rebellious Israel. That throughout history, God has come and he has saved his people. And then what happens? They, are, they, are they grateful? Well, some of them are. But the majority of them, over time, forget God. They forget about his gracious ways. They forget about what he has done, right? Um, and this is just a new picture of it within um, Jonah, right? He's self-centered, self-righteous, self-willed. He thinks that he can do his own thing and say whatever he wants, right? That he has full control. Um, nevertheless, even though he is driven in a certain way, the sailors were still converted. The entire city of, of Nineveh was changed, right? And came to faith, or was brought to faith. And even Yahweh has changed his verdict from judgment to salvation. The only one who hasn't changed is Jonah. He's the only one who hasn't changed. And that's the question in, in the last part here, right? The only one who remains unchanged is him, or does he remain unchanged? Um, so now we're in that last scene, scene seven, very biblical number, right? Which is chapter four, verses... Uh, 4 through 10, 
11. Sorry. 4 through 11. So we see here in scene 7 um, a funny thing. So the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side, and there he made himself a shelter or a tabernacle, right, or a booth, and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant, or, you know, in the King James it says a gourd. Uh, the, the word for, the word that is used here is, what's it called? Worm. No, 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 that, he sends a worm, like, I'm talking about the plant, like the name of the plant. I have castor oil plant. Yeah, so sometimes it's, it's translated, like, it's a, it's a word, what is it? The kikayone plant. Yeah, 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 the kikayone plant. Uh, in Hebrew, it just says kikayone. And no one knows what that is. <laughs> no one knows if it's a gourd. No one knows if it's a castor oil plant. No one knows what it is. But uh, Luther says it doesn't matter what kind of plant it is. Don't let the small details. Um, gourds, gourds grow fast. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's the thought. But the thing is, is that if you're actually going to go back and look and see what that word actually means, no one knows what kick a young means. So that's why Dr. Lessing in his commentary just translated as kick a young plant. It, 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 it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter what kind of plant it was because it was still like God still was the one who miraculously made it grow really fast, right? So it doesn't really matter what kind of plant it is. Luther says, let's, let's not squabble about, um, about these things. What does he say? Luther says uh, it doesn't really matter <laughs> because what matters is the reason why it grows um, and what happens in the context of it all. Oh yeah, here he goes. Luther says, um, Nothing is gained by fighting over a matter of no importance since the Hebrew word means neither ivy nor gourd, but it is the name of a tree unknown to us but indigenous to that region. Um, and then Dr. Lessing says, the identity of the plant is not crucial. As with the gourds, uh, the Hebrew term is of uncertain meaning. What is crucial is the effect and function of the plant in the context of the narrative, right? And the same is true about the great fish. That's what I was getting ready yeah. to say. Was same it a thing. whale? What kind of fish was it? Serpent. Yeah, what was it? Well, in the, in the Hebrew, it's literally a fish, right? Uh, how you want to interpret that is... Not really all that important. What matters is the context surrounding it and what, what it's used for as part of the narrative, right? Because we can spend all day saying, well, it's probably a gourd. It's probably a castoral plant. We don't know. It's a kick a young plant. All right. Um, it's a fun word to say. Kick a young. Sounds good to me. Kick a young. So um, we see here that um, what happens with this plant? Uh, it says... God prepared a kikiyong plant and made it come up over Jonah and that, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. And actually in my, in my New King James, uh, it says, um, it literally means rejoiced with great joy. You know, I see a, a problem here. What's the problem? Because there is a problem here. He did the thing. 
thank God he was just happy? Well, that's possibly part of the problem, but what is he joyful about? He's joyful for shade, mm -hmm. but he wants people to die. <laughs> he's not joyful that sinners are saved. He's not happy at all that God has saved people from everlasting death. But he's so glad that he's got some shade in the heat. <laughs> Think about that. You know? So he, is a, he, he rejoiced with great joy for the plant, right? Because uh, he was miserable in that heat. He just needed some shade. That's what he's happy about. Selfish, 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 right? But then as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered, right? And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a, a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live, right? So back and forth, back and forth. It's kind of getting exhausting, isn't it? Um, so then God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Um, and Jonah, you know, <laughs> in his anger says, it is right for me to be angry even to death, right? Like, Come on, God, you know I'm upset. Why can't you just give me this one, <laughs> you know? It's kind of a baby. Um, so we see that through all of his experiences, actually, this is kind of an interesting thing. After Jonah gets vomited out of the fish's belly, do we see him say anything? Thank you, Lord. No, not even that. <laughs> through all of his highs and lows, through everything that he's gone through, he's seen such miraculous things, He's experienced these miraculous things, and yet he has joy for shade from a plant. Right? And then when it's taken away from him, he gets mad. He gets and mad. And just says, says, kill me. He's, yeah, he's really a selfish person. He's pretty selfish. So it's not looking good for Jonah, right? But then... Um, All about me. Yeah. But then he said, but then the Lord... Tells him. But how would you feel if you've been in the belly? Of the right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we see here that after he is angry, he, he tells God, it, it, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock, right? So we don't see, God fills in the blank here as to why Jonah is upset because, and God, God knows Jonah's heart. So he speaks truthfully saying, you had pity on the plant, that's why you were upset. But you don't have pity for these people? You don't have pity for these people who don't know their right hand from the left, meaning that they don't know about the salvation that comes from the Lord, apart from someone actually coming and telling them about it. So it's this question that is left us wondering what is going on, right? 
what happens to Jonah. And it's kind of masterful because it is the narrator's um, strategy to um, leave room for us to provide our own answer. So I ask you, what do you think happens next with Jonah? He marries a Ninevite and lives happily ever after. <laughs> All right, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, it is probably, it is, a, it is within the realm of possibility that Jonah relents, you know? It's yeah. certainly within the possibility. Well, it's also within the possibility that he just says, forget it, I'm just going to wander off into the desert and just whatever yeah. happens, happens, yeah. right? But it's interesting, this one sentence that there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle. So it kind of sounds like Ninevites are pretty stupid. <laughs> well, they were ignorant to the knowledge of salvation. Um, because really, what is, what is the beginning of knowledge? Fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. They did not have the fear of the Lord, therefore they had no knowledge that was worth having. Right? So yes, they were stupid, quote-unquote, unto salvation. They had no idea how to be saved. They had no idea that their wicked ways were actually wicked. Which is, all, which, which is important for us to understand that you know, we see people who are... Um, we see people who are... Uh, Um, we see people who are going about life seemingly good, seemingly doing the right thing, living a good life, doing the right things, but they don't go to church, they don't know Jesus, they don't know any sort of form of salvation, they never read their Bible, they never know anything like this, and yet we just say, oh, they're fine. They're living the good life. Are they? Are they really? If they don't know who God is, if they don't know who Jesus is, they're no better than the, the Ninevites who didn't know their right hand from their left when it came to true knowledge that was worth having, right? I mean, it comes down to the old saying, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> if you don't know any better. If you don't know any better, how do you know what you're missing? Yeah. Right. And the, the interesting, the cattle. You know, cattle is one of the few animals you can just turn loose and they kind of take care of themselves. <laughs> well, sheep you have to stay after, goats you have to stay after. Well, uh, they translated cattle in the New King James livestock. Mm -hmm. That's an all-encompassing term because you see in the king's decree that he says that no man or animal, right, no man or beast, herd or, nor flock, should taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. So it brings even the livestock and the creatures into the realm of salvation. Not that, you know, it's, it's not that, uh, you know, that God offers salvation to the animals, but it's that it's one of these things where all creation was affected by the fall, right? right? Man wasn't the only one that was promised death because of sin. That when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden into sin, 
and were cast out, all of creation was affected, right? Um, some even go so far as to say that from that point on, you know, lions had fangs and, uh, you know, different, different uh, beasts that weren't carnivorous were now carnivorous. You know, it was because, because they had to kill and eat. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure about how all, that, how all that worked. I'm not sure it's all that important. But what is important is that death came into the world for all things, yet God offers salvation primarily for man as the height of his creation, the crown, the crown of his creation. And because man is saved, therefore all of creation follows along into salvation with him, right? In the end, on the last day, when we are raised to new life, it won't just be people that are walking around. We'll have cows, we'll have dogs, we'll have cats, we'll have, we'll have animals, because it'll be in the end as it was in the beginning. Right? So that's why he's saying, you know, uh, so because if he would have destroyed uh, Nineveh, he not only would have destroyed all the people, he would have destroyed all of the animals that were innocent, right? They would have been burned up and killed too. And he doesn't desire those things, right? He doesn't desire those things. So then he asked this rhetorical question, right? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. Now, 120,000 people don't sound, it doesn't sound like a lot by our standards, you know. New York City's got millions of people, and, you know, Los Angeles millions, Houston millions, Chicago, whatever. But to Jerusalem, I think at this time, Dr. Lessing says that um, Jerusalem only had about 6,000 people in it, right? It's smaller than Fredericksburg. Uh, so 120,000 people is a lot of people back then. Um, and for that many people to die, to be destroyed because of their sin, is a big deal. And also, it's interesting that Jesus even mentions um, in Matthew 12, he says, you know, that the only, the only sign this generation will receive is the sign of Jonah. And he talks about how just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. And then he says... Um, I believe it's right after this. He says, The men of Nineveh will arise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. That is to say that all those people in, in Nineveh believed. Therefore, we will see them in the resurrection. They will be there. Right? So Christ our Savior has confessed that they were saved. And this, there's a question, kind of a cliffhanger, right? That, shall God have compassion on all people? Right? That's kind of what's being said here at the end. Shall I not have compassion on all people, even the people that are deemed wicked? And what's the answer? Yes. How? Yes, how? Through Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. He has compassion on all flesh all men, by becoming flesh, by being made in the likeness of man, right, so that all flesh would be saved. And we've talked about this before with our talk of Hebrews and, and things like that, that all throughout 
the New Testament, it's fully revealed that because God, the Word, right, the Word becomes flesh and dwelt, and dwelt among us, um, because that happens, He lives our life as we ought to live, which is without sin, right? And yet He is condemned as a sinner. He pays the price so that we would be saved. And all He asks is for us to trust in His work. Not in our work, but in His. So yes, the answer to the end of Jonah is Jesus, right? <laughs> and on some level, it's like, that's it? It's like, well, what, what more do you want, right? It's the eternal God made into flesh. Is that not enough, right? Uh, and, and with us leading into Christmas here uh, in a couple days, this is exactly the kind of thing we should be focusing on right now. That, all, that God has mercy and compassion on all people, that he does not desire the death of the, of the s s s sinner. Sorry. He does not desire that they should perish forever, but that they should live and be called a child of God. But he's not going to force people to do this, that some people will remain in their sin and, and their unbelief, right? And it'll, and it'll really be their own fault, sadly. But salvation is for all people, right? And even to Jonah here, where God says, should I not have pity on these people? I have pity on you, right? They are more faithful than you are. So do you think Jonah was saved? I don't know. I don't either. I look forward to possibly seeing him, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in in heaven and in the resurrection. Saved, I would hope, you know, it's 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 the same, and we'll stop here because we're over time, but it's the same sort of question with anybody who, uh, you know, you have any sorts of doubts about when they die. Um, you know, there are just, we, we, we cannot say who is and who isn't saved unless it specifically says so within Scripture. Um, we don't know for sure. We can be pretty sure, you know, someone who goes to church every Sunday uh, and who, you know, comes to communion, who's baptized, and it's like that, say, yeah, I've, 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 got, I've got real good assurance. And God is merciful in all sorts of things, but he, he, is, he shows his mercy to those who fear him, as we heard from Mary on Sunday, right? And I, and I guess even, even at the end, Jonah still feared God. You know, he knew how powerful God was and everything else, so yeah. even though he was rebellious like we are. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I know I'm kind of leading it on a heavy note here, but when it comes to salvation for other people, I, I try to make clear that I don't know, I, I can't say for sure about anybody else other than myself. I know for sure that I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know I will be going to heaven. Yeah. I can't say that for sure about other people, but the only thing we can do is we can look to what God has done in their life by bringing them to baptism. We can look at what God has done by bringing them to confession and absolution. We can look at what he has done for them by feeding them his body and blood and trusting that God is merciful and that he will take care of them, right? We trust not in the works of the people. We trust in God's work. And we look to his grace for the assurance, right? 
So with Jonah, we look to God's grace and we hope in his mercy that he was long-suffering even until the end and that Jonah relented to God's grace, right? We pray that he did not stay stubborn because uh, as, as I heard a pastor say recently in one of his sermons, he said, you know, unbelief takes a lot of effort. I don't know if I said this before, I probably did, but unbelief takes a lot of effort. It's like a kid who's really angry and you give him ice cream and you say, it's like, how can you be angry when you're eating ice cream? You know, you have to try really hard. But you can, you know why? Well, all right, Tim, well, fine. You want to throw that in the mix. But I, I, hope, I, I, I hope you all have enjoyed this and, and I have enjoyed it. It's a nice short... Uh, thing and, and I was thinking about I was like why are we doing Jonah right before Christmas but hey you know, it's a nice short book and um, there's a lot in there probably more than you thought there would be uh, and it's very relevant for us today that cliffhanger at the end is for us to consider and ponder for ourselves too right that's that's how Jonah stays relevant even for us today because salvation is always relevant you know well and you can lose so is salvation. God's Anytime, even up to your last breath. Yeah. Um, so, you know, until you draw that last breath, you don't know. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we, we trust in God's grace. Yep. All the way to the end. Any questions before we stop or close for the day? Maybe Jonah was just having a bad week. <laughs> Maybe Jonah was having a bad week. Maybe, Maybe he was a Maybe what? Maybe he was a feminine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That uh, what did you say our next book would be? Um, our next book, I don't... Uh, the thought is Ecclesiastes, but I need to look into it a little bit more. Once we get out past Christmas, we'll see about what it's, what it's going to be. Because uh, it'll be a short, you know, rel relatively shorter study before we do kind of a more in-depth, topical kind of study in the spring. So yeah, hopefully COVID will be over with by then. Yeah. Well, we'll see. What we'll are you contemplating for us in the spring? Something what I'm contemplating in the spring is to go through a book called The Lutheran Difference. And what it will be, it's, it's a book that's put out by uh, our publishing house. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty neat. It's, it, it follows the outline of the Nicene Creed. And... It'll be a fairly long one if we get to it. I'm still trying to work out the logistics because it'll be, it's like 18 chapters. So if we do a chapter a week, that'll be about 18 weeks. But it's, but it's worth it. It's worth it because it really gets into, and I'm, I'm also looking at making that our new members class or kind of a, a refresher course on what we believe. So anybody who wants a refresher course or anybody who wants to become a new member or something like that can go through that and, and call that a new members course. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a, to see what it'll do is it'll say, what do we believe as Lutherans and why are we called Lutherans? And, you know, we, we believe what the Bible says and we believe what the Lutheran confessions say about the Bible, this sort of thing. And it also takes what other denominations believe and kind of contrasts that with what we say that we, we believe about certain points of teaching. So, interesting. Telephone's ringing. Hello? Excuse me. Sure. All right. Well, 
once you once you take care of that, we'll go ahead and uh, close here. <laughs> this is what happens in Bible study. It's all good. That's what happens. Well, let's let's close with the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.